pray together. Oh Lord, that is our prayer, that you would shine on us this morning, that you would lift up your countenance upon us, that we might taste some of that fullness of joy that is found in your presence, or that we would have your grace pouring out on us as we meet in your name, as we open your word, as we seek your face. Lord, would you draw near to us and speak to us by the Spirit? I pray for anyone who is still in the depths of darkness, of sin. Lord, that you would do what you have done for many of us, that you called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, so that even today there would be a miracle of rebirth, new life in Christ. And Lord, for the rest of us who already do know you, Lord, we need fresh life. And so as we look at your word about that this morning, I pray that we wouldn't just read about it, but experience some of what we're reading about more and more. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Most of us know what it's like to experience a season of spiritual sluggishness. Our Bible reading is dry and sporadic. Our prayers are pretty dull and lifeless. Our hearts are lukewarm, if not numb. We know we don't want to stay in such a dull condition, but what can we do when we feel so disconnected in our relationship with God? Our text for today addresses this very common problem and shows us how we can pray at such times. If you have your Bible, please turn with me to Psalm 85 as we wrap up our series of summer psalms for another year. As uh, has already been mentioned, the summer flies by quickly and we're already into the fall first three verses start off by remembering God's former mercies. So Psalm 85, verse 1, O Lord, you showed favor to your land, you restored the captivity of Jacob. So all of the verbs in these first three verses are in the past tense. Each phrase is recalling something God has already done for his people So first, he has shown us favor, which in the dictionary means friendly regard shown toward another, especially by a superior, approving consideration or attention, gracious kindness. So the sons of Korah are calling to mind how God has displayed his grace and kindness in the past, including how he restored the captivity or fortunes of his people. And it's possible to, this is referring to the restoring of the people from the captivity in Babylon for 70 years, but it seems more likely that it's talking about being delivered from some kind of affliction. For example, in Job 42 verse 10, in the King James it reads, the Lord turned the captivity of Job and restored 
gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job was never in a literal captivity. He was never a prisoner. He was delivered from severe trials and brought back to an even better condition than he was before. And so both the New American Standard and ESV render verse 10, the Lord restored the fortunes of Job instead of calamity of Job. Same thing. And so verse 1 in ESV says, the Lord restored the fortunes of Jacob. So here's a thankful remembrance of God's mercy in delivering his people from some time of trouble and showing his gracious kindness to them in a new way. Second, he has forgiven us all our sins. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. To forgive is to lift or carry away a heavy burden, namely the burden of our sin, all the times we have fallen short of what God commands by thought, word, or deed. And how far has he taken them away? Well, Psalm 103 tells us this. This is such good news for all of us. Psalm 103, starting in verse 10. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And he's also covered our transgression means hide from view or remove from sight, never to be seen again, never to be brought up against us again. Micah seven nineteen says, You will cast all of their sins into the depth of the sea. They'll never be seen again. And so as the sons of Korah remember God's past mercies, they can't help but think of the incredible blessing of enjoying God's forgiveness. Psalm 32 quoted in Romans 4, How blessed, how truly happy in the fullest sense of the word are those whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Closely related to that, God has removed his wrath. Verse 3, You withdrew all your fury or all your wrath. You turned away from your burning anger. So wrath is God's righteous anger and holy hatred against all that is sinful and evil, along with his righteous commitment to punish sin and evil with perfect justice. And there's nothing we could ever do or offer to take away God's wrath, but God in his grace and mercy sent Jesus. And the death of Jesus is a propitiation, which is a big word for a sacrifice that absorbs and removes wrath that should have fallen on us. And so in Romans 3, Paul talks about this. Romans 3, beginning at verse 24. Being justified, declared right in God's sight, perfectly acceptable in God's sight. How? As a gift, by His grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. So there's that word, this sacrifice that removes wrath. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. So God couldn't just say, sin doesn't matter, I'll just forget about it, we'll just sweep it under the rug, pretend I don't care. He must be just. He must punish sin. And he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. So how does he do that? And it's because Jesus is taking the wrath that should fall on us. Before we move on, we just need to ask the question, do you know your sins are forgiven and that you're not under God's wrath? The Bible is very clear God takes sin very seriously and there are infinite and unchangeable consequences if sin is not dealt with properly. If God is convicting you this morning, acknowledge, I'm a sinner who's guilty before a holy God. I have done what is wrong in God's sight. I have failed to do what is right in God's sight. I deserve his wrath for the way I have disobeyed and dishonored him. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says that's everybody. Indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who continually does good and who never sins. So we're all in this same situation. We're all sinners. God's wrath is over us. We need forgiveness. And so we turn from sin, we repent, we stop going away from God, turn back to God, that's repentance, and we turn from trying to earn God's acceptance by anything we can do. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So you can't work for it, you can't do anything for it, it's a gift. And so we trust in Jesus alone to be rescued from sin and wrath. We believe his death on the cross is the only way God could forgive our sins and remove his wrath in a just way. And we believe he rose again from the dead to demonstrate he had done everything necessary for sinners like us to be acquitted and accepted by God. Next week in Acts 4, in Sunday school, we'll get to Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else. Rescue from sin brought to God. In no one else there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. That's the name of Jesus. And the Bible says whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So call on him. By God's free grace alone, many of us are believers this morning. And it's good for us to be reminded of God's past mercies. We now enjoy his favor. We receive grace upon grace out of the fullness of Christ. John 1.16 We have experienced his forgiveness of sin, so we have the blessed assurance that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we never have to fear being under God's wrath because 1 Thessalonians 5.9 tells us God has not destined us for wrath but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So the psalm starts by remembering God's former mercies, and then it ends with hoping in God's future mercies. So I just want to fast forward to verse 8 and 9 in Psalm 85. I will hear what God the Lord will say. For he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. 
So here is a confident expectation that God will speak peace to his people. You might know the word peace in the Old Testament is the word shalom. It's not just the absence of conflict, but the presence of blessing, including the ideas of wholeness, soundness, health, and well-being. So there's an encouraging message coming from God, not a message I need to dread. There's a message of judgment coming, but a looking forward to hearing a message from God of peace. And in verse 12, indeed, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its produce. So here's a confident expectation that God is going to give something good in a general way as well as a specific example of causing the land to be fruitful. And the Bible and the Psalms talks in similar words. Psalm 34, verse 10. Well, let's start in 8. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for to those who fear him there is no want. The young lions do lack and suffer hunger, but they who seek the Lord shall not be in want of any good thing. Or Psalm 84, verse 11. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And then as believers, we can think of Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, he's already given us Jesus, but delivered him up over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? So the Lord will give us what is good. He's promised that. So how can a holy God who has righteous wrath against sin speak peace and give what is good to fallen people like us? And verse 10 and 11 give us a glimpse of that in Psalm 85. Loving kindness or mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth springs from the earth and righteousness looks down from heaven. I just appreciate Matthew Henry's words on these verses. These speak of the harmony of the divine attributes in the Messiah's undertaking. In him who is both our salvation and our glory, mercy and truth have met together. God's mercy and truth and his righteousness and peace have kissed each other. That is, the great affair of our salvation is so well contrived or designed that God may have mercy upon poor sinners and be at peace with them without any wrong to his truth and righteousness. He is true to his threatenings and just in his government and yet pardons sinners and takes them into covenant with himself. Christ, as mediator, brings heaven and earth together again, which sin had set at variance. For God is just and the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So see how that goes together? God is righteous. He's holy. He has wrath. He has to deal with sin. Jesus fulfills all that so that God can righteously treat us with mercy and goodness and grace. So there's just this sweet little verse in Psalm 85 that kind of describes that in a poetic way. So the psalm starts with remembering God's 
former mercies, and the last paragraph is hoping in God's future mercies, and in the middle paragraph, we see praying for God's fresh mercies. So why don't we just walk through the five requests the sons of Korah are asking God to do for his people. So Psalm 85, verse 4. Restore us, O God of our salvation. So, o God of our salvation, restore us or turn us. We are not where we should be. We're not where we want to be. And we can't turn ourselves around. So please don't let us stay in this current condition. Bring us back to where we need to be. Restore us to a close relationship with you. It's similar to the prayer in Lamentations 5.21. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Restore us that we may be restored. God has to do this. We're asking him to turn us. We can't turn ourselves. We need God to do it. Or, think of this 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. One of the things he does is he restores my soul. My soul gets weary. My soul gets depleted. My soul gets tired. I need it restored. I'm not just talking about your body needing restored. My soul needs to be restored. And the shepherd does that. For his people. Second request. Cause your indignation toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Now we saw in verse 3 that God's wrath has already been removed. And that his anger has already been turned away. There are no references to sin or calls to repentance or any other objective indicators that God is upset with his people, which seems to point to this being a subjective perception rather than an objective reality. So here's an example. Psalm 13, Psalm 10, several Psalms. David says, How long will you forget me O Lord, does God actually forget his people? No. God is not absent-minded. God doesn't get distracted. God is omniscient. He knows everything about everything all the time. He doesn't forget anything, except our sins. So, To pray, how long are you going to forget me, is not saying, God, you're doing something wrong. It's, I feel like you've forgotten me. That's my subjective perception. But it's not reality. Or think of in a... So, I think that's what's going on in this verse. They're, they're, They're feeling a sense of distance. It seems like things are not quite right between them and God. And sometimes in a marriage relationship, a spouse might ask, is everything okay? Is there something wrong? Are you mad at me? And 
And sometimes there is a problem and that needs to be resolved, but sometimes it's just a perception. There's nothing really wrong, which is a great relief. And I think that's the, 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 the flavor of this request. Lord, it seems like you're withholding your blessing. It feels like you're not happy with us at the moment. Would you please reassure us that everything's okay between us? Verse 6. Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Occasionally we see the word revive in the news. For example, stimulus package designed to revive sluggish economy or coach tries to revive his flagging team during the mid-season slump. If you look it up in the dictionary, it means to reinvigorate with fresh life. To restore health and vitality. To renew strength and energy. To make alive or lively. That's exactly what we need when we're spiritually flat. When we're spiritually apathetic. I need some fresh life. This is John Piper. The idea of revival originates in the reality that on the one hand... God is the decisive giver of all spiritual life. And on the other hand, humans, even those who are born again and part of God's covenant family, from time to time drift into a kind of lifelessness and lethargy, which means just kind of out of it, and backsliding and indifference and weakness. And when you put those two together, God is the giver of life and man is ever drifting towards lifelessness. What you get is the need for reviving, of coming back to life, a fresh outpouring of God's life-giving spirit on his people. And so that's the prayer of verse 6. It's an acknowledgement. We can't do this for ourselves. We can't plan revival meetings. We can't just follow some special technique to bring fresh life to our souls. So we are looking to you, Lord. We're depending on you. Will you not yourself revive us? Here are two other texts that encourage us. God is willing and able to revive his sluggish people. Jeremiah 31. Go to Jeremiah 31. Look at verse 25. God is speaking and he says, For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. Weary means to be exhausted in strength, vigor, or freshness. Languish means to be weak or feeble, to be in a state of decreasing vitality or kind of going downhill. God says he is the one who can satisfy us when we're weary. He is the one who can refresh us when we're languishing. King James and ESV both talk about the weary soul and the languishing soul. So again, we're not just talking about physical perking up. A cup of coffee can do that for you. 
We're talking about our souls being weary and languishing and dry and dull and barren. And we need something fresh. We need some life. God says, I can refresh that kind of soul. Or the other verse is one we looked at in Sunday school this morning in Acts 3.19. If you want to turn to that verse, Acts 3.19. It's after the healing of the man that it's been lame since birth. Peter says, Therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Refreshing means having the power to restore freshness vitality, or energy. So we get in seasons of dullness and dryness and lukewarmness. That's the kind of seasons we experience. And here's God talking about seasons or times of refreshing, coming from his presence. So how do we connect that? We've got the dullness. He's got the refreshment. And we ask for it. We pray. That's what Psalm 85.6 is. It's a prayer Will you not yourself revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? That's a prayer. James 4.2 says, you have not. Why not? You ask not. If you're flat and you're still flat, you've been flat for a while, it could be because you haven't even asked. God, would you revive me? We see that in Psalm 143.11. David prays, For the sake of your name, O Lord, revive me. David's a man after God's own heart. David's an amazing super saint. And he's praying, God, I'm weak. I'm flat. I need new strength. I need fresh life. I'm asking you to do that. For the sake of your name. Quoted it before, but it's a great quote for a text like this. Matthew Henry said, If we have but little grace, it is not God who is lacking. It's not like you're going to ask for reviving grace from God. He's going to say, Sorry, I don't have any more to give you. Fresh out. There's always an abundance of grace for every need, including reviving grace for the asking. And so let's ask. And notice what the goal of asking God to revive us is. That your people may rejoice in you. I like to read from Charles Spurgeon. Will thou not revive us again? We are dead or dying, faint and feeble. God alone can revive us. And so we appeal to him, will thou not? That thy people may rejoice in thee? Thou lovest to see thy children happy with that best of happiness which centers in thyself. Therefore, revive us, for revival will bring us the utmost joy. Those who were revived would rejoice not only in the new life, 
but in the Lord who was the author of it. And so, yes, it's great to be revived instead of flat, but it doesn't terminate on you feel better. It terminates on rejoicing in God who gave you that fresh life. Two more requests in this psalm, back in Psalm 85. Show us your love and kindness, O Lord. Show us your mercy, O Lord. We can't see it very clearly right now. We don't want to just know about it or hear about it. Would you please make it undeniably obvious to us? Would you give us some unmistakable evidence that we are the objects of your love and mercy? David prayed in Psalm 86, show me a sign for good. (laughs) Give me a fresh token of you're with me and for me and helping me and you're on my side and you're going to work things out. I I need a new reminder of that. Show me. And then the last phrase, and grant us your salvation. Salvation can mean simply deliverance from trouble or danger, Rescue from harm, bringing to safety and well-being. And of course, it has a much deeper meaning as well. And so as believers, we could pray, grant us a greater understanding of your salvation. Give us a deeper appreciation of your salvation. Enable us to taste more of the fullness and sweetness of your salvation. That we would have more of the joy of all you have done to bring us into a relationship with yourself. Maybe we could add at that point how David prayed in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of your salvation. Sometimes we lose that joy. And so we pray, ask for it. Restore to me the joy, restore fresh life in my soul. So let's pray. So Lord... We thank you for the miracle of new life in the first place. We were dead in our trespasses and sin. You made us alive in Christ. You caused us to be born again. We have eternal life. And Lord, our souls do get run down. And they need to be revived. We need fresh life. And so we pray along with the sons of Korah, will you not yourself revive us again? Or revive us as individuals in our own walks with you. Revive us in our families. There's a lukewarmness in our homes. Revive us as a church family, Lord, that we would seek your face. All with the goal that we would rejoice in you, that your people would Have a fresh joy in who you are as our God. Pray again for anyone who's never experienced the new birth in the first place. Only you can bring it about. And so we pray that you would do that miracle. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) We stand and sing, revive us again.